All right, welcome to Advent week three. Uh, today on the Advent wreath, we are lighting the pink candle. The pink is the, it stands for joy. So we've done hope, we've done peace, and this week it stands for joy. So we'll light the Advent candle and then we will get rolling. We're in Matthew chapter 11 today. Matthew 11 verse 2 says this. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we talked about John the Baptist last week. And we're actually going to talk about John the Baptist again this week. And uh, we find John the Baptist in a situation where he's been preaching the gospel. He's been proclaiming about Jesus. And now he finds himself in a Roman prison. And, you know, John the Baptist was, according to Jesus, what we just read, according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest man who had ever been born among women. Did you catch that? Jesus himself said that. Who is the greatest born of women? John the Baptist. So, okay, he is the great. And, but John, even as the greatest, he finds himself in this Roman prison, and John is confused about his situation. John is confused about even Jesus. Did you hear what John said? John had questions. John went through a period. He's in Roman prison. He's searching his soul. John asked Jesus, are you the one coming. Is this you? Which, think about it, that's such an interesting question because in chapter 3, John the Baptist is the first one to declare that Jesus is the coming one, right? He's the herald, herald proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and fire. He is the coming one. These were John's words, but now John is sitting in a prison and he's asking Jesus, well, are you really the one? What do you do when you're the one telling everybody else about Jesus, but now you're the one questioning whether Jesus really is who you thought he was going to be? Think about John's situation. John has preached that judgment is at hand. John has preached that the Messiah is here. And we all know what Messiah is going to do when he comes. He's going to reboot the kingdom of Israel. It's going to be the kingdom of Israel 2.0. He's going to destroy Israel's enemies with fire. 
the new golden era of Israel would take place and Jesus would come. And, but when he does come, John is confused because he's not forceful. He's kind of gentle. I mean, when Messiah comes, there's supposed to be like cataclysmic, apocalyptic things happening, right? You read the prophets, it's like the stars are supposed to fall from the sky and the moon's supposed to turn to blood. But none of that is happening. And John, the one who proclaimed that Messiah is coming to set people free, he literally tells Jesus is coming to set people free. And now John himself is a captive. John himself is not free. John himself is sitting in a Roman prison because he had been declaring about Israel's Savior and about the holiness of life that people should live because the kingdom of heaven is here. John sits in a prison. Soon he will be beheaded. And John wants to know, Jesus, did I miss it? Did I miss something here? Was I wrong about you? John, the great one has questions. You know, Jesus even says it here about John, and it's been told about John that John comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah is perhaps Israel's greatest and most revered prophet. In fact, Israel believed that Elijah was going to come as a forerunner before the Messiah, right? We see this in Malachi 4.5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So uh, Israel believes Elijah's coming, then the Messiah. Okay, did you know even today that many Jewish people, when they celebrate Passover, they keep a open chair at a table. They set a place setting for, for uh, someone who is supposed to come, and that someone is the prophet Elijah. They have an empty seat at their Passover meals. They are awaiting his return because that will mark the beginning of the end. It marks in salvation history the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord when he will make things right. And so John the Baptist comes in the likeness of Elijah. He is the last great prophet. Jesus says, John the Baptist, that he was the Elijah that Malachi prophesied about. Elijah, the great prophet. Now I want you to think about how great Elijah was. Think about how powerful and mighty Elijah was. Uh, there are eight miracles, they say, that Elijah did. And you can read them in First and Second Kings. Number one, there was a time when Elijah shuts up the heavens. He prays and he causes a drought. Number two, there's a time when Elijah multiplies flour and oil for a widow who only had a little bit. And the flour and oil lasts for a long time. There's a time when Elijah raises that same widow's son from the dead. There's a time when Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. He prays in, in English a 53-word prayer and fire falls out of the sky and consumes an altar and he defeats the prophets of Baal. Okay, he, he brought rain. He prayed for a drought, but then he prays for rain and rain comes. He destroys 51 soldiers with fire and lightning in 2 Kings and then he destroys another one, 51 soldiers. So 102 soldiers with fire and lightning. And then his last miracle that we know of is that he lays his cloak on the waters of the Jordan River and the waters part and he crosses the river. Okay, Elijah was great. The great man of God who could call down fire from heaven. Even Elijah had his moment of doubt. Even Elijah maybe even battled depression. You see, Elijah had given his life to see Israel transformed. 
At the risk of his own life, he challenged the prophets of false gods. He even, he, he, he thought after he called down fire from heaven. I mean, if someone prays a 53-word prayer and fire falls from heaven, he thought the entire nation was going to repent and idol worship would be gone in Israel. He thought there would be a great revival in the land. But even after all his miracles, the people didn't change. And so Elijah, <laughs> you can read it. He says this to God one day. He says, God, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm done. He said, I'm no better than my father's. I'm no better than my predecessors. They preached in Israel and nothing happened. I've preached in Israel. I've done miracles and nothing has happened. And now my life is being threatened. So think about these two great men. John, the greatest man who ever lived. And Elijah, the greatest prophet of Israel. They thought God was going to act one way and God was going to do things a certain way. They thought they knew for sure what the outcome would be of their ministries. But when God didn't act how they expected God to act, they find themselves bewildered. They find themselves confused. They find themselves one in a prison, another in a cave. And they're asking, did we miss it? Did we miss it? And you know what? I know there's people watching today. You've been there. Or maybe you're there today. You thought God was going to do something one way, and it never happened. You thought for sure that you were going to get that job. You thought for sure that you were going to see God move in that situation. You thought, you, you knew for, cert, for certain how God was supposed to act, and you think what he's supposed to do, but then he doesn't do it, and we're confused, and we're bewildered. Listen, if the greatest prophet in Israel got confused, and the greatest man who ever lived got confused. There will be times in our walk with Jesus where we simply don't understand. And I think we can learn some things from John the Baptist today. What do you do when you don't understand? You know, the first thing you do when you don't understand, I love this, John, even though he's not able to go himself, he sends his disciples to Jesus. He takes his question to Jesus. And I think this is so important. I think you need to take your confusion, you need to take your grief, you need to take your bewilderment, and you need to take it and you need to lay it at the feet of Jesus. One of the greatest examples of taking your questions to Jesus is in the book of Job. I don't know if you've ever, you should read the book of Job. It's really an exquisite book on the problem of evil and suffering, right? Job has literally been through hell and back. He's lost everything and everyone he loves. And most of the book is a, is a dialogue. It's Job and his friends that are talking back and forth. And when you read what Job's friends say about Job's predicament, it seems a lot of what they say is right. They actually talk a lot about God. They talk about, they're like, Job, surely maybe you've done something or you've sinned because God is a holy and just God and you wouldn't be walking through this if, if you hadn't done something you weren't supposed to do. Just repent of whatever you've done and God will change your situation. Basically, if you, if, you, if you act good, good things will happen to you. If you act bad, bad things will happen to you. And it makes a lot of sense and it even sounds right. And sometimes what they say about God seems spot on. They talk about God being just and good and great. But then you listen to Job talk in his suffering. 
And man, Job has some wild words. Job says some things that almost borderline on heresy at points. Job says wild words. I mean, when, when, when you are suffering and you're hurting, so you sometimes will say wild words. And Job does say wild words and you can't blame him for it. God is silent most of the book. But then one day God shows up. And when he shows up, it's interesting what God says to Job's friends and what God says to Job. Job 42, 7 says, After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now this is interesting because if you read, again, if you read what Job's friends say, you think they're talking right about God. And if you read what Job says, you think Job is talking crazy, almost like I mean, he is bold. He is brash. He is in God's face saying, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? I mean, why, why would you let this happen to me? I mean, Job is brash. But when God comes down, he, is, he tells the friends, you've not done right. And he tells Job, your words have been right. Why is this? Peter Kreeft poses this question. He says, why does God accept Job's wild words? And why does he reject the seemingly orthodox and right words of Job's friends? And he says, the answer is because Job prayed. Listen to this. This is important. Job spoke to God with his wild words. The three friends never prayed. They only theologized and philosophized. They never talked to God. They only talked about God as if God was not there and God is silent. There's a lesson in Job, and there's a lesson in John the Baptist today. What do you do with your confusion? What do you do with your bewilderment? What do you do with your questions? You don't just talk about God. You take those things straight to God, and you lay them at his feet. And you might not get a straight answer from him, because G, uh, John didn't get a straight answer from Jesus. Job doesn't get a straight answer from God. But what they do get is they get God himself. They get the presence of God. And that is all we need. He is enough. Take those doubts. Bring those fears. Bring those questions. Bring them to the feet of Jesus. That's what Job did. That's what John the Baptist does here. He says, are you really the one? And of course, in typical fashion, Jesus does not give John a straight answer. Does it, wouldn't that just be a simple yes? Like, hey, John, it's me. I'm really the one. Sorry you're in prison, but yes, I am the Messiah. Just you wait. Instead, Jesus quotes a scripture from Isaiah. He doesn't give him a straight answer. He, he goes back to a scripture from Isaiah 35. It would have been a scripture that John knows well. John would have remembered the prophecy, the whole, the whole text of Isaiah frontwards and backwards, and he knew the text. And I just think it's interesting that Jesus brings John back to the written word. Isn't that wonderful? The living word. When John wants an answer, what does the living word do? He brings the John back to the written word. He brings them back to the Bible. He, there is life in the word of God. It might not always be the straight black and white answer you're looking for, but I'm telling you there is life in the scriptures. There's power in it. There's nourishment that your soul needs in the moment. 
and the word of God is living and powerful. It will not return void, but will always accomplish what it is meant to do. And Jesus, the written word, drives John, I'm sorry, the living word, drives John back to the written word. And he, he tells him, tell John the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. Jesus is quoting this from Isaiah 35. And the context of Isaiah 35 if you, if we're going to go back and read it in just a second. It's that in Isaiah 34, God talks about judging the nations and turning the nations into a vast wilderness. God judges the nations. But after the judgment comes Isaiah 35. God takes the wilderness and he makes it bloom. God takes the chaos and he brings it to life. He turns a grave into a garden. He takes sorrow and he turns it into joy. Jesus takes John back to Isaiah 35. It's only 10 verses. Let's read it together. It says, The wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes, right here, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the highway of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So if you read that text, if you read what we just said there, you understand a little bit why John is confused. Because before there's supposed to be anybody being healed, there's supposed to be vengeance and recompense. And so John is looking for vengeance. He, he will come and save you from your enemies. He will come and destroy Rome. And, and, and you too would probably be confused because you're thinking this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. But Jesus tells John, Isaiah 35 is happening in your midst. The kingdom of God is intersecting the world through the miracles of Jesus. The miracles are signs of the kingdom. They're signs of the things to come. Don't give up hope, John. Don't be offended at me because I don't fit into the mold you think I should fit into. Look at the fruit. Look at what's ha happening. Open your eyes. God is here. You just need to trust me. Trust God. Here's what Reginald Filler says about Isaiah 35. And how do we go back and interpret Isaiah 35 through the lens of Jesus? He says, The New Testament took up such prophecies as Isaiah 35 and found their fulfillment in the Christ event. 
It is the coming of Christ that the wilderness, it's in the coming of Christ that the wilderness blossoms as the crocus. It's in him that the glory of the Lord is made manifest. It is in Christ that God comes to save his people. And it's in Christ that the exiles return to Zion with great joy. Jesus is telling John, John, the fulfillment of Isaiah 35 is in me. It's in me. Look at the fruit. The kingdom is here. You didn't miss it. I am the coming one. I want to talk just very briefly about the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus. I think it's always important to remind ourselves that the healing was not just periphery to, to the ministry of Jesus, but that Jesus was a healer. And I believe Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if Jesus was a healer, then Jesus is a healer now. And Jesus will be a healer forever. You see, the Bible says, or Matthew 4 says, that Jesus went about teaching, preaching, and healing the sick. These are the three things that Jesus goes about doing in his ministry. So that means at least one-third of Jesus' ministry focused on healing. Now, in America, we are okay with preaching. We're okay with preaching. We like to hear a good preacher. We really love teaching. We love to hear a good teaching, but we're not too sure about this healing. And we don't know what to do, especially with healing and the casting out of demons and deliverance. We really don't know what to do with that. Basically, in America, the supernatural side of the gospel is kind of thrown out. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But we need to have an understanding that this is a supernatural gospel. And Jesus is a supernatural healer. So you know what? Here at the crossing, we're going to preach that Jesus is a healer. And we're going to pray the prayer of faith. And we're going to lay hands on the sick. And we're going to believe to see them recover. Okay? Jesus was here. Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is a healer. I like what Glenn Packiam says about Jesus healing people. He says, when Jesus heals people, what he is saying is that God is in charge here. What he is saying that God is God is going to have the final word over these people's life. He's saying blindness won't have the final word. Leprosy and disease won't have the final word. Demons won't have the final word. Cancer's not going to have the final word. But Jesus is going to have the final word. And when you read the text and you read the gospel and you see Jesus going about and healing people, what is he doing? He is making his creation whole again. He's taking fractured people and fractured lives and he's making them whole. He's saying, I am the Lord of creation and Jesus has the final word over creation and Jesus is in charge. You say, well, what, what, about, what about if you pray for someone and they don't get healed? Look, that's not up to me. Jesus is a healer, not me. I pray the prayer of faith. God is the one who does the healing. If I go out, I'm going to go out swinging, okay? I'm going to go out believing. I'm going to lay hands and believe, and I'm going to leave the rest up to God until my last breath. We're going to believe that Jesus is a healer. But you say, well, what about people that, that they just don't get healed? What about those who die? Well, I have a question for you today. What about John the Baptist, okay? Because John the Baptist is sitting in a prison, in just a few days, he's about to get his head chopped off and put on a silver platter. And Jesus has the nerve to tell John, John, look, look at all the great things that are happening. There was a blind man, John, you weren't here, but back in chapter 9, I healed a couple of blind men. There was a 
some lepers that I cleansed of their skin disease, John. John, what about the, the, the person in chapter 9 that couldn't walk? And I told them to get up and take up their bed and walk. You didn't see it, John. You didn't, you didn't see it, but it happened. And, and am I the Messiah? Look at all the good things that are happening. Look at all the miracles that are happening, God. And, and John's probably like, well, Jesus, that's great. But what about me? <laughs> what about my situation, Jesus? I'm about, to, I, I'm glad, I'm glad uh, Bartimaeus can see, but I'm fixing to die. What are you going to do for me? And the answer to John is this, John, even if you don't, even if I don't behave how you think I should behave, meaning I don't deliver you out of this situation. John, I want you to know that this is not the end. Your end is not the end, but I am the end. The hope we have is the one that is hope beyond this life. Remember, healing is just a sign. The miracles, the dead people being raised, the deaf people hearing, the lame people walking, those are all just signs. A sign only tells you the thing to come. Think about you're driving along the interstate and when you, at every exit there's a big sign and it tells you everything that's on that exit. That is just, that, that is just a sign. The sign is not the thing. The sign points you to the thing. A sign tells you about what is coming. Jesus' healings and miracles and setting people free, those are just signs of what is to come. They are just pointing you to the ultimate fulfillment, and the ultimate fulfillment is the new creation that is coming. The thing that is coming is Jesus. We have an eschatological hope. Jesus is telling John, John, you can trust me. I am the coming one. Your end is safe with me. Can I tell you something? Everyone who gets healed is still going to die one day. If you're blind and I pray for you and God heals you, praise God, hallelujah, I'm glad you can see, but you're still going to die one day. If you're laying in the hospital and you have cancer and you're sick and we pray for you and God raises you up, praise God, but you're still going to die one day. We all will face death. And Jesus gives us signs. He gives us miracles of the thing that is to come. And the thing that is to come, if you're in Christ, is eternal life. This is not the end, John. Even if I don't move in your situation like I'm moving someone else, it's not the end. A lot of people think that this is the land of the living, but we're headed to the land of the dying. But in Christ, the opposite is true. This is actually the land of the dying, and we're headed to the land of the living. We trust God with our salvation, our sin. We can trust him with our healing. Trust him, John. Trust him today. And I want to end talking about this thought where Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He tells that to John. Don't be offended at me, John. Boy, we live in a culture where everybody's offended by everything today, don't we? Everybody's offended about everything. That's offensive. <laughs> oh, you know what? Jesus was offensive. Jesus is offensive to our culture. Jesus is offensive to our American society. He is. 
Why is it so offensive? Because Jesus comes to give good news to the poor. The poor. What does that mean? Well, for a second, let's talk about good news. What is good news? Good news is an announce. Good news is a gospel announcement of an historical event that brings wonderful. That brings the uh, a wonderful new order of things. Okay, so let me say that again. It's an announcement of an event that has taken place that brings in a new order of things. So back in the day, if something good had happened, like a good king had been crowned or an invading army had been destroyed, there would, after the event takes place, then someone would go out and declare the good news, the announcement of what has happened. Good news is an announcement of something that has been done. Good news is not something you do, but rather it's about something that's already taken place and what has taken place now affects you. So what is the good news? The good news is that salvation has come. The good news is that you're not going to reach up to God to find salvation. You're not going to have a revelation about the way to be saved. But the good news is actually, no, salvation has already come. Now you just have to respond. God has broken through. God has become flesh. He's dealt with the barriers between us. If you think about Buddha and you think about Muhammad, these are revelations that teach you philosophy and you learn the way of salvation. But you see, Jesus is different because Jesus is the way of salvation. Salvation in the Christian gospel is not about you doing anything. Salvation in the Christian gospel is about an announcement of what's already been done for you. And you just respond. And so why is the gospel offensive to our culture? And I like how Tim Keller talks about it because uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he pastored in Manhattan, many years in Manhattan. And this is, I mean, he just openly, he's pretty honest about it. He says, I want to tell you the difference between the gospel of the poor and the gospel of the people who live in Manhattan. Because Manhattan are the upper class, right? They're the, they're the very well-educated, uh, wealthy people. And that's where he pastors. And he says, if you go to a lot of churches in Manhattan, a lot of churches in Manhattan will say this, we're a Christian church, but we are very modern in what we have discarded some of the primitive doctrines of the text. We've discarded the idea of a virgin birth. I mean, come on, that's kind of, who can believe in a virgin birth? We've discarded miracles, you know. We now know that it's just science. And we've discarded things like the atonement and Jesus dying on the cross for sins. And, and, and so basically we've kind of thrown out these primitive ideas, but we still follow the teachings of Jesus. The teaching that we should love each other. The teaching against hate. The teachings about justice. Now, we kind of, these other things about the gospel, we've, we're, we've grown past that. But we, we, we've got Jesus now as our great teacher and we follow his teachings. That's the upper wealthy class. But he said, but Tim Keller says, now, if you get out of the city center and you go to those in the urban areas, if you go to those outside of Manhattan, he says, you go into the inner city instead of the center city. And here's what you're going to find is that the church is there. They have a supernatural Christianity. 
They talk about miracles. They talk about the blood. They talk about the virgin birth. They aren't as educated and they don't have the insights or whatever that the wealthy do. But what they do have is they still have a gospel that has some teeth in it. And this is what Tim Keller has resolved. He says, privileged people don't like the gospel because privileged people believe we are self-made. That we are where we are because of how hard we worked. But poor people know that they're really not in control of their lives. And we are who we are. If anything good happens, it's because the grace of God. Basically, why is the gospel offensive to our American culture? It's because we don't think we need a savior. He says, if you take out the doctrines of virgin birth, if you take out the doctrines of atonement, if you take out the miracles, then what you, you don't need a savior. You just want Jesus as an example. And Jesus didn't come just to be some example. You see his example and you can be his example if you try hard enough. No, Jesus came to save those who know that they have nothing good within themselves and nothing good can come from them. And they need someone to save them and a savior. The goodness that they have is not something they achieved on their own, but something they've been given because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel is an announcement of what has already taken place, not the announcement of come find a way of salvation. No, the way of salvation is Jesus. We just respond to him. That's the good news today. So if you're in a situation like John the Baptist where God's not acting how you think it should act, or you're like Elijah, or you're in a situation today where you just are bewildered, that's okay. Take that bewilderment to Jesus. Take it to him. Get in the text. Let him speak to you from the text. Know that Jesus is the coming one. He is the Messiah, and he's coming back again. And that is our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is not having everything perfect and right here. Our ultimate hope is not building a utopian society. Our ultimate hope is Jesus coming again like he did the first time. We need him to act in the world as he acted before. We need him. The message today is that joy comes from him and his presence. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray that as they're walking through life, as they're walking through this season, maybe they're bewildered. Maybe they're like John the Baptist sitting in a prison thinking they missed it. They have missed you somehow. Lord, I pray that they would know that in you the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, that in you everything is fulfilled, that you are the one who brings the kingdom and that if we have you, we have all that we need. Jesus, we long for you. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. So the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus, won't you come? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully your fire didn't go out like this candle went out in the middle of my message. Maybe I'll try to light it again. But uh, have some joy this Advent and we will see you live at 9 or 11 or 9 or 10 a.m. here on Virtual Church. Have a good day.